All right, turn to Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to be looking at quite a bit of Isaiah this morning, quite a few of the first chapters. While you're turning there, let me share a little story with you. When I was finishing up my time at A&M, my last summer as a student at A&M, I took an internship up in Washington, D.C. So I packed my, my little Nissan full of all my possessions and drove up to D.C. for the summer. And, and I, I really I expected it to be very fun. But over the course of the summer, about midway through, uh, my registration and my inspection sticker on that Nissan expired, and so did my driver's license. But, you know, I figured, well, I'm just, I'm just here for a summer. I'm just here for another month. And, and I hate to renew everything because I'll have to renew it for Virginia and you've got to pay all their fees. And then I'll get home to Texas a month later and have to pay all the fees again to switch it over to Texas. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, technically, I know it's illegal to drive with an expired license, but come on, not really that big a deal. If a cop pulls me over, I'll just explain myself. He'll totally understand, right? Well, turns out, Secret Service did not understand. My last Sunday in Washington, D.C., I thought I'd take a nice little scenic drive through the city. So I'm driving down Massachusetts Avenue in front of all the embassies, very beautiful road to drive on, and pull up to a, a light, and a Secret Service officer's on the other side of it, and he sees my, my inspection registration. They're out of date. So he loops around, and he pulls me over, and I'm thinking, man, this is a bummer. My last day in D.C., but I'll just explain. I'll totally understand. Turns out I never had a chance to explain because he asked for my license. He sees it's, it's expired, and, and he asked me to get out of the car. And, and by this time, I kid you not, I'm boxed in by four Secret Service vehicles. I've got six Secret Service agents surrounding me. They take me to the back of my car, put my hands behind my back, cuff me, put me in their car, and take me downtown. So, yes, just so we're clear, your pastor has an arrest by the Secret Service on his record. So, I'm kind of hoping that that's not a deal killer for you. I'm hoping you're not going to leave our church because of that. It was a long time ago, really bad choice on my part. Actually, the day went downhill from there because they took me down to the station. They took me into this little interrogation room and they cuffed me to the chair and left me there for about an hour. And that's when I realized my, my choice to take those traffic laws lightly was a really bad idea. Really bad idea. I thought they were no big deal. Police, they care about things like, like assault and theft and murder. That's what they care. They're not going to care about an expired license. Turns out, no, they really did care. They cared a lot. Well, let me ask you a question. Why do we sin? Why do we sin? Well, usually it's not out of ignorance. When we're giving into sin, we, we usually know that what we're doing is wrong. Just like I knew that to drive with an expired driver's license was wrong. We know it's wrong. So why do we sin if we know it's wrong? Well, for the same reason that I chose to drive. Because we think our sin is really not that big a deal. I mean, come, come on, most of us, we're not giving into sins like murder or assault or adultery or something like that. Our sins are relatively small, little a little bit of gossip here, an unkind word there, stoke the pride a little bit here, a selfish choice there, a little bit of lust, an inappropriate TV show, small things. I mean, everybody struggles with that. It's not that big a deal, right? Well, that was the attitude of Isaiah's audience. They took their sins lightly. He wrote to the nation of Judah, and they were surrounded by nations full of pagans who did horrible things, a lot of idolatry, gross immorality, a lot of violence, just really, really wicked stuff. And Judah looked at all the bad stuff that they were doing, and then they looked at themselves and said, hey, we're really not that bad. The sins we struggle with are like selfishness and pride. Everybody's guilty of those. That's not that big a deal compared to those people, right? Not that big a deal. And they use that excuse to, to justify their sin and to rationalize their sin. And they kept giving into these small sins over and over and over again, just like we do. We take sin lightly, just like they did. We, we, we take our sins lightly. It's not that big a deal, the stuff we struggle with. 
Well, the book of Isaiah has a message for us this morning. It's it's a harsh message. It's a difficult message. Isaiah wants us to understand that in God's eyes, there are no small sins. In God's eyes, there's not a, a hierarchy of sin, big sins, murder, small sins, pride. No, in God's eyes, all sin is sin and all sin is equally serious. In God's eyes, sin, any sin, all sin is a very, very serious thing. It it is a fatal mistake to think otherwise. That's Isaiah's message for us this morning. He wants us to understand that any sin, all sin is a really, really big, serious deal in the eyes of God. And I want to prove that to you by walking you through the first five chapters and then chapter 13 of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is going to lay out for us five reasons why all sin is a really, really bad idea. Why all sin is such a big deal in the eyes of God. Reason number one. Why all sin is such a big deal. Because all sin is inexcusable in light of God's goodness. Look with me at chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. Isaiah says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. It will lay waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. Now, uh, this is really a, a pretty amazing passage. It's really a very poetic, beautiful song in Hebrew that Isaiah crafts that he puts together from the Lord's inspiration. And this, this song, this poetry, it's meant to draw his audience in. He's actually going to draw them into a trap. He's going to draw them in so that they end up condemning themselves. You see, Isaiah is writing to a, an agrarian society. They're the farmers in this story is what they assume. They're all farmers. They grow vineyards. They put a lot of work into the land. So they identify with the farmer in the story. They connect with the care and compassion that he has poured out on this vineyard. They see how, how strained he must be as he puts all this work and labor into it. And then they, they connect with his frustration when all of his hard work produces no good fruit, when the vineyard doesn't produce anything good, they connect with that. And so the question of verse four, what more could I have done for my vineyard? They would shout with righteous anger, nothing more. You did everything possible. You're a really good farmer. We identify with that. But then Isaiah has a surprise for him. Verse seven, hey, you're not the farmer. You're actually the vineyard. Men of Judah, you're the vineyard, not the nations around, not these pagans, not these Gentiles. No, you're the vineyard into which God poured all of his effort, all of his care, his compassion, his grace, and yet you produce nothing good in return. That's really the story of the Old Testament. If you want the story of the Old Testament in a nutshell, it's God gave grace to a people called Israel and they returned the favor with disobedience. That's the Old Testament. 
Over and over again, God gives them incredible grace. He created them. He gives them life and breath. He gives them his word. He reveals his nature to them in scripture. No other nation had that. He gives them incredible covenant promises, the Abrahamic covenant. They will have all of this blessing unconditionally for all eternity. He gives them that. He, he releases them from slavery in Egypt. He kicks other people off the promised land and gives it to them instead. He blesses them and cares for them and protects them and gives them victory over and over and over again. And how did they return the favor? with disobedience, sin after sin after sin, sins they call small, but that God looks at and says, how inexcusable is this? I've given you nothing but grace for your entire history and you return the favor with sin. That is inexcusable. And the same is true of our sin. See, we've received nothing but grace from God. He's given us life. He's given us breath. He's given us his word. In the English language, we have more translations and more resources for Bible study than any other language in the history of mankind. We're incredibly blessed by God. We have this great church that we can attend and learn the word of God and freedom. We live in a country where we're not harmed for worshiping God. We're blessed with one of the best education systems. We're blessed with unparalleled prosperity and health. God has given us so much good, and yet still we choose sin. How inexcusable that sin is, especially the small sins. I'm going to turn my back on on that creator, on the one who's given me nothing but grace my entire life so I can stoke my pride a little bit, so I can, can give in to selfishness or lust a little bit. Does that make any sense? How foolish that we excuse our sin in light of the infinite goodness of God. That's Isaiah's first reason why all sin is absolutely a big deal because it is incredibly inexcusable in the light of God's goodness. Reason number two why sin is such a big deal, because all sin always leads to misery. The natural, unavoidable, logical consequence of sin is always pain and misery. Now you saw that with the vineyard, the sinful choices of the vineyard in that example, and that song, and that metaphor, it, it brings about that the vineyard is trampled by wild animals and briars and thorns grow up in it. The result of the worthless grapes is that it experiences pain and disaster. Well, God lays that out as a principle in chapter three. Turn to chapter three. Look in verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. Here is the principle that God wants us to understand. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. But woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. In verse 9 in the NAS, it's translated evil. It's the the Hebrew word ra'ah. It means that which is harmful. And, And here it's not referring to moral evil. It's here referring to disaster or misery. In other words, Isaiah is saying the one who chooses to sin brings disaster or misery on his own head. That's just part of the universe that God has designed. The natural law of the universe is that if you choose sin, it leads to misery and pain. If you choose righteousness, it leads to blessing. Life works. That's the the law that God has woven into the fabric of the universe. Now, actually, that that really shouldn't surprise us. You see, God built this universe, and he built this world, and and he built us, and then he gave his instruction manual, our owner's manual, if you will, right here that tells us very clearly what you need to do if you want this whole life thing to work out well. And so if we obey it, life is gonna go generally well. 
If we disregard it, it's going to go generally poorly. It's a lot like the owner's manual that you get with your car. My dad owns an automotive repair shop, and he's been amazed over the years at how many cars come in, even new cars, with ruined engines. Engines that are totally trashed simply because the owner did not follow their instruction manual, and particularly that little instruction that talks about changing your oil. Now, changing your oil, it's kind of annoying you got to carve out time from your schedule. you got to pay money. you got to take your car and drop it off. It's kind of a pain. And so people look at that and say, I'm really, I, I don't want to do that. That's a pain. And come on, it's not that big a deal. It's not like my car doesn't have oil in it. It's just not fresh oil. What's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal when you show up to my dad's shop and it's going to cost you $3,000 for a new engine. That's how God's laws work. God didn't say no to certain things or yes to other things just to be mean or capricious or arbitrary. He's our creator. He told us what works and what doesn't work. You disregard his instructions to your own detriment, just like owners disregard the instructions in their car's owner's manual. It leads to pain and misery. All sin always leads to pain and misery. Let me prove that to you. Let me give you a few examples that scripture lays out. Many, many examples of the misery that sin produces. Here are just a few examples. Number one, guilt. Sin invariably produces guilt. It's that feeling. You felt it before right here in the gut of your stomach. When you do something you know is wrong, the natural response is guilt. It's a physiological feeling that God designed into the human body. He wanted you to feel it when you do something wrong. It's like the indicator light on your dashboard of the car. Something's wrong. Here it is right here. I want you to know it. If you disregard that feeling for long enough, it turns into stress and anxiety. It can lead to actual depression. It can even lead to physical illness, to sickness, if we disregard it. Actually, I think a couple of the Psalms that David wrote, he's writing about a physical illness he is suffering because of the guilt that's weighing on him for his sins. First consequence, natural consequence that comes of sin is guilt, right here in your stomach. Second, addiction. I think Paul in Romans chapter 6 lays out a really, really significant truth for us. Verse 15, he talks about how if you give yourself to obedience, you will practically speaking become a slave of obedience. If you instead give yourself to sin, you will become a slave of of sin. Now at that point in the letter, he's writing to believers. This is true of believers and unbelievers alike. Whatever you give yourself to, obedience or disobedience, you become a slave of that thing. In other words, if you obey today, you will want to obey more tomorrow. If you disobey today, you will want to disobey more tomorrow. I think Paul was giving us right there a theology of addiction, a theology that has been filled in by medical science over the last hundred years. They've proven Paul was spot on. When you give in to sin, it stimulates the pleasure center of your brain, just like any addictive behavior, and you become an addict of that sin. That's how God designed the human body. Whatever you do today becomes a habit tomorrow, which becomes an addiction afterwards. All sin is inherently addictive. That's why there is no small sin in God's economy. Every small sin is just one step on the path of a big sin. All small sins lead to addiction, which leads to incredible destruction in your life. All sin is inherently addictive. Third, what about misery to others? Does your sin only affect you? What about private sin? What about a sin that only you know about? Does that only bring misery in your life or does it affect other people? I want to use an example here that's very relevant. We hear about this all the time. Uh, Christian men who give into the temptation to look at pornography online. So you're going to go to a pornographic website. They know it's bad. They really shouldn't do that. But come on, no one's going to know about it. It's, it's not going to hurt anybody else. Just their deal. Is that true? Does it only hurt them? 
Well, let's ask, does it hurt their wife or their future wife if they're single? Well, yeah, it does. Pornography is designed to build expectations in your mind. You, you can't change that reality. It's going to build expectations that no woman on the planet can satisfy. And your wife's going to know it. Even if she doesn't know that you ever looked at pornography, even if she doesn't know that you ever are dis- or that you're never going to say that you're dissatisfied with you, she will know that you are not satisfied with her. Guaranteed. So it's going to hurt her. And then what about your kids? Will it hurt them if they never find out about it? Well, I would actually challenge the second part of that statement. Our kids know our computers better than we do. They're going to figure it out. They're going to find out probably. Now, let, let's talk about it. If there's even a chance that they could find out that you've gone to that webpage, do you want to take the risk? Do you want your kids to think about what's on that webpage when they see you? Talk about the misery you'd inflict upon them. And, and now let's talk about beyond just your immediate family. Does it affect anybody else? Well, uh, when, a, when a man goes to a website, right at the top of the website, there's a banner ad. That banner ad is sponsored by an advertising company that pays the owners of the website for every visit, every hit. And that man just added one more hit to their list of visitors. So they're going to pay a little bit more money to the producers of that website company, that adult or pornographic company that put it together. They now have a bigger bank account with which they can hire more employees to put together more pornographic websites to ensnare more young men. Or they have more money so they can offer more money to that 18-year-old girl who is desperate. She's, she has no job. She doesn't know what to do. She needs help. They now have a sweeter offer to give her to lure her in to the enslaving and destroying industry of pornography. All because that man clicked on a web page on his computer when he thought no one was looking. Sin is never private. Sin brings misery to the sinner, to everyone around him, and to the world as a whole. Sin destroys everyone you care about and even people you don't know about. Sin is never private. It brings misery upon the sinner and everyone else. I like a summary that was written of this principle 400 years ago by a theologian named John Owen. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I'd add to it, be killing sin or it will be killing you and everyone around you. That's how sin works. It kills us and everybody we care about and even people we don't know about. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. All sin leads to misery. No matter how small you think it is, it always leads to misery. That's just a universal law of God's creation. So first two reasons that Isaiah has laid out for us are pretty heavy. This is pretty serious stuff that Isaiah is putting in front of us for why sin is such a big deal. These are pretty serious, but the next three take it up a notch. You think this is harsh. Just wait till Isaiah reveals to us how God sees our sin, what he thinks of our sin. Look with me at chapter 13. This will be the primary chapter for the next three reasons why sin is so serious. Chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 6. Here's how God looks at sin. He says, verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will will exterminate its sinners from it. 
For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of a four. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts and the day of his burning anger. Isaiah's laying out here three more reasons why sin is such a big deal in the eyes of God. Reason number three, the third reason, is because all sin, no matter how small we think it is, will be judged by God. That's interesting. The first few chapters of Isaiah, actually all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 35, it is full of courtroom lingo. The the big idea, the context of the first half of the book of Isaiah is God's universal courtroom, God ruling over the world. That that context begins right at the beginning of the book. Leave your finger in chapter 13 and turn to chapter 1. Beginning of the book, look with me, chapter 1. The book of Isaiah begins in God's court. That's where the whole book begins. In the courtroom of God, chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him." What God is revealing to us in this passage is that in the courtroom of the universe, God is offended party, prosecutor, and judge. He is all three in the book of Isaiah. He is all three in reality. God is judge, prosecutor, and offended party. He's offended party right there in verse 4. You have this, this, uh, these synonyms that are laid out for sin. Okay, Isaiah describes sin in lots of different ways. And look at the end of the verse. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. All sin is ultimately rebellion against God. When you sin, you're, you're really not sinning against another person as much as you're sinning against God. He's ultimately the one you're offending. Even if you think your sin is really too small for him, it's really not about him, it is rebellion against him. That's the definition of sin, rebellion against God. So he's the offended party. All sin is an offense against him. And he's also the prosecutor in this courtroom. He is bringing charges against Israel. Notice right in verse 2, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. This is lingual terminology. God, as the prosecutor, is calling his witnesses. Come into my courtroom, heavens and earth, and bear witness against the accused. Show what they have done. He's calling his witnesses. He's the prosecutor, and he's also the judge. He's the one who will render sentence, not just against his own people, but against all of humanity. God is judge of the living and the dead of all human beings. He will judge all of us. And his standard of judgment is righteousness. In chapter 5, verse 7, at the end of that song that we read, God says, I, I was looking for righteousness. What I'm looking for is the judge of, human inter- of all humanity is righteousness. That's the Hebrew word tzaddik. It's used 81 times by Isaiah. It's a big idea in Isaiah's mind. Righteousness refers to behavior that conforms to a standard. That's the basic idea of righteousness, behavior that conforms to a standard. And it's used a whole bunch of different ways in the Old Testament. It can refer to 
accuracy of speech. If your speech conforms to truth, then it is righteous in the sense of accurate. It can refer to being fair or just. If you live in conformity to the laws of your nation, then you are right or just. It can refer to loyalty. If you live in conformity to your promises, then you are righteous in the sense of loyal. That's kind of what the word means, to live in conformity to a standard. Now, what do we mean by God's righteousness? What standard is God living in conformity to? Well, not something above or outside of himself. He is his own standard. He is the ultimate standard of righteousness. We talked about that last week. Isaiah chapter six, God is holy, holy, holy. He is the standard of of all that is good, of all that is right, of all that is proper. God is absolutely and unendingly perfect in everything that he says and everything he does and everything he thinks. It's always perfect. Now that standard not only describes God, but that standard is what God expects of his creation. He expects all of us to live in accordance with his righteousness. What the judge of the universe holds us accountable to are not our definitions of righteousness, our laws. It's his definition of righteousness, perfect righteousness. To meet the demands of the judge of the universe means that your every action, your every word, your every thought, and your every attitude is perfectly good every way, every time. 700 years after Isaiah, Jesus will show up and make that point. He will say in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What does your heavenly father expect of you? Perfection. As the judge of the universe, that's his standard. That's his bar that he holds everyone accountable to absolute perfection. In other words, there is not some small amount of sin that this judge is willing to live with. There's not some small amount of of sin that he will excuse, that he will say, that's no big deal. You're living within the tolerances of life. No, he expects absolute perfection. That's again why there is no such thing as a small sin. All sin, whether it be small or big, is an offense against the judge of heaven and earth and he will hold us to account. He will punish all sin, no matter how big we think it is. Okay, so Isaiah's point in this verse or in in this section is to convince us that sin is a really big deal because every single human being on this planet will stand in the courtroom of God and God will be offended party prosecutor and judge. He will judge us for our sin. And he is the almighty judge of heaven and earth. His standard is perfection. So we really should be choosing righteousness now. You really don't want to get on the bad side of this guy because he's judge of heaven and earth. So choose righteousness. Sin is an incredibly bad idea because all sin will be judged by the almighty God. It's the third reason to take sin seriously. Fourth reason that flows out of Isaiah chapter 13. is that all sin incites God's anger. Back in chapter 13, verse nine, Isaiah says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger. That word anger in Hebrew is a really funny word. It it can be translated anger. It can also be translated nose or nostril. That's how the word is used in chapters two and chapter three. What's connecting nose and anger? Well, the Hebrews were very literal people. And so they saw that when you get angry, when a guy gets really angry, his face turns red and the reddest part is the nose. So that's why they use the same word for nose and anger. They're connecting that. And the point for us is that when God says that he is angry, he's not talking about some kind of intellectual thought that God has. He's talking about emotional anger. When it says that God is angry, it means he is really emotionally, intensely upset at our sin. 
Now, actually, Isaiah doesn't say that God is angry. He talks about the burning anger of God. It's a compound in Hebrew. It means that this anger is so intense that God feels against sin that his face lights up. It's as if it's burning red. He's got a sunburn. He's so incredibly intensely angry at sin. Now, for some of us, we hear that, that God is intensely angry at our sin and it kind of kind of sets us back on our heels. Because we've seen human beings get really angry and it can be really ugly. And, and what we need to understand is God's anger is not like our anger. God's anger is not arbitrary. It's never capricious. It's never beyond what it should be. It's, it's always within control. God's anger is always just. It is always right. And we need to understand that anger itself is not a sin. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, be angry and yet do not sin. You can't obey that unless anger is not a sin. If you're angry about the right things in the right proportion, then it is righteous anger. And we saw that when Jesus shows up. He comes to the temple and he sees these, these rich, rich fellas that have set up these money changing tables to extort the poor. These poor people want to worship and these guys are taking advantage of them for a profit. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he doesn't get up and teach a sermon. He gets so angry that he braids together a whip that he beats the guys with. He is intensely angry and yet never sinned. Well, that's just a little picture for us of how God thinks of human sin. It makes him intensely angry, fiercely angry. Now, the good news for us is that the Bible says elsewhere that God is slow of anger. Psalm 86. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. That uh, word in Hebrew, it literally is, God, you are a God with a long nose. What's the point? A long nose. Why would God have a long nose? Well, as your face turns flush with anger, the point is it takes a long time for God's whole face to turn flush with anger. He's slow in the buildup of emotion. He's never arbitrary. He's never capricious. He doesn't just come down in anger. He's slow to anger. He's patient. He's kind. He waits to see if repentance comes. But if humanity continues to sin, at some point, the length of God's nose is exhausted and his anger overflows in wrath. And that's reason number five why sin is such a big deal. Because sin, all sin, leads to God's wrath. Again, chapter three, wrath is the word fury that you see in verse nine and verse 13. Cruel with fury. The wrath of God, it comes from a word that means to, to cross over or to overflow. The idea is the wrath of God is the overflow of his emotion of anger. His anger is put into action. Anger is the emotion. Wrath is anger in action. And when God's anger overflows into action upon the earth, it is a terrifying thing to behold. Isaiah chapter 9 says, By the fury of the Lord or by the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up and the people are like fuel for the fire. When God's wrath is poured uh, out upon the earth, no one is left standing. Anyone who is in the path of God's wrath becomes fuel for the fire. They are utterly consumed and destroyed. God's wrath is a terrifying thing. When his anger is filled and it pours out on wrath, everyone is destroyed. It's a terrifying thing to behold the wrath of God. Now, I, I know this isn't a popular subject these days. Don't hear a lot of sermons on the wrath of God. We don't want to talk about the wrath of God. It's actually kind of ironic. What's the most famous sermon ever preached in America? Did you know? Learning grade school? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
Jonathan Edwards, 1741, a sermon all about wrath, most famous sermon ever preached in America. It's all about wrath, but we don't want to talk about it today. In the last 50 years, we've tried to take the church and we've tried to take the church's understanding of God and we've tried to change it and morph it and make it more palatable to society. So we, we drop any attributes of God. We don't talk about any attributes of God that are not popular in society. And top of the list is what? Wrath. So we don't talk about wrath. So we want people to like God. Problem is, if, if you cut out an attribute of God, then you're worshiping something that is less than the true God of Scripture. And Scripture calls that idolatry. A church that does not believe in the wrath of God is an idolatrous church because God is who God says he is. And he says, I am a God of wrath. My wrath is righteous, it is just, and it is intense. And you need to believe it. And God is unapologetic about that. He's not like us. He doesn't feel like he's got to give excuses for his wrath. He's really clear about his wrath. He tells us, Nahum chapter one, verses two and three. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The Bible is without excuse. God is absolutely a God of wrath. Now, if we'll think about it for a moment, we'll realize actually we want a God who has wrath. You really don't want to believe in a God who has no wrath because what is wrath? Wrath is God's punishment of sin. Do you really want to live in a universe where God cannot punish sin? That's what it means to believe in a God without wrath. Let's take an extreme example, the Holocaust. Realize most of the Nazis who perpetrated the Holocaust never faced a human court. They never faced human punishment for their sin. Okay, so if you live in a universe owned by a God who has no wrath. And then God gets angry at the Nazis, but there's nothing he can do about it. They're going to be in heaven just like you because he can't punish sin. No big deal. He's got to let the Holocaust slide. That's a God without wrath. Now, when we think of happily ever after, we're thinking about a universe full of justice, a universe where sin and evil is punished and justice requires wrath. God must respond to sin and wrath if you want to live in a just universe. We want a God who's wrathful. Now, the problem is the Nazis are not the only ones who are sinners. We're sinners too. God doesn't make distinctions between like Holocaust kind of sin and our little sins. It's all sin in his eyes. It all makes us all worthy of the wrath of God. That's the problem. That's where the gospel fits in. The gospel is the really, really, really good news that God's wrath was poured out on the cross rather than us. The gospel is the news that God spent his wrath upon his son rather than upon us. Now, some of you who are more observant have noticed we now have a cross on the stage. We're really excited. We've been trying to get one for a while and and we had an architect here in town make it. It's really beautiful, really excited about it. But I do want you to know uh, that cross is not a decoration. It's not like filling the stage so it looks prettier. Uh, That cross is a memorial. It's a memorial to the place and the time in which God's wrath against sin was poured out on his son instead of on you. Paul talks about in Romans chapter five. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's what the cross is about that God sent his perfect son to willingly take our sins upon himself and face the wrath and punishment of God on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. 
And having fully satisfied the wrath of God, Jesus rose from the dead three days later and now he offers to all of humanity the free gift of forgiveness. You never have to face the wrath of God if you will simply accept his gift of eternal life. If you will believe that Jesus died in your place, took your punishment in your place and then rose from the dead, you will forever be delivered from the wrath of God. You'll never face the wrath of God. No matter how bad the things are that you've done in the past, no matter how bad the things are you will do in the future, you will never face the wrath of God. Now, if you're here this morning and you are not absolutely sure that you have been freed from the wrath of God through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. There is nothing else more important that you will ever do because that's the only way that you have any hope when you stand before God is that Jesus took your wrath in your place. Please come talk to us. But now let me talk to all the rest of you who are here who have accepted that gift. You have believed that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. I I want you to understand how that fits into Isaiah's message. Here's the list again. Here's why sin is such a big deal. I want you to understand the death of Christ. It only took care of item number five. Death of Christ only took care of item number five on that list. The death of Christ satisfied the wrath of God for your sins, but the other four items on the list are all still true of you as a believer. For of a believer, our sin is still really serious. It is a big deal in the eyes of God because reasons one through four are still true of us. In fact, look at this. Is our sin still inexcusable in light of God's goodness? Yes, it is. In fact, our sin is more inexcusable than an unbeliever's sin because we've been given his spirit. We've been given his truth. We've been saved by him. Jesus died for us. How can we give in to sin? For a believer, sin is even more inexcusable. Second item, it always leads to misery. Well, that's still true. When you accept Jesus as your savior, God doesn't deliver you from the natural laws of the universe. Sin still leads to misery in your life and the lives of those around you, just like it does for an unbeliever. Sin always leads to misery. Third, will it be judged? Yes, it will. As believers, we will be judged by God for our sin. Now, the location of our judgment is different than it is for unbelievers. Revelation chapter 20, unbelievers will stand before the great white throne of God the Father and their lives will be judged. Their works will be evaluated and the consequence for all of them because no one will live up to his standard will be eternal condemnation. For us who are believers, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we've been delivered from the great white throne judgment. Our judgment is in a different location. The Bible calls it the judgment seat of Christ. It's in heaven. But at the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe, will stand in judgment of us. As his sons, he will stand in judgment of us. He will look at our lives, not at our faith, but at our works. He will evaluate all of our actions, all of our words, all of our thoughts, all of our attitudes, even the private ones that we thought no one saw. He'll bring all of that to light and he will render judgment upon it. Not judgment for heaven or hell, but judgment for reward or loss honor or shame, you will be judged. Every human being will face a day of judgment. It's the judgment seat of Christ. That's really good news, but it's still really serious. Carries eternal consequences. So third one is still true. And how about the fourth one? Well, yeah, when a believer sins, it still makes God angry. When you give in to sin, God responds to that in the emotion of anger. For some of you, that's really hard to believe. Wait a minute, I thought, I thought God loved me. I thought his love was unconditional. Yes, it is, but love is not antithetical to anger. In fact, the more you love someone, the more angry you are when they keep making self-destructive choices. That's how God looks at our sin. Yes, he loves us, but it grieves him intensely. It makes him angry when we sin because he knows better than we do how horrible a choice that is. 
Believers, we have to understand when we sin, God responds in anger. He's incredibly angry at our sin. I'm really hoping this morning that this list will clear up once and for all the misunderstanding that Grace Bible Church is somehow light on sin. Yeah, we're we're big on grace, but we're also big on sin. Yes, Jesus' death fully satisfied the wrath of God. No matter what you do in the future, you have eternal life. You can never lose it. And yet, when believers sin, the consequences are devastating. Sin could not be more serious. Sin is huge. Sin is always an incredibly devastating thing. So now let's, let's apply Isaiah's message to us. What does Isaiah want us to do with what we've studied this morning? Well, number one, he wants us to adopt God's view of sin. He wants us to take our sin as seriously as God does. He doesn't want us to keep, to keep justifying and explaining our sin, pretending as if it's no big deal. He wants us to understand once and for all that in the eyes of God, there's no such thing as a small sin. There's no such thing as an excusable amount of sin. All sin is treason against the high king of the universe. All of it is equally inexcusable. Isaiah wants us to adopt God's view of sin. Now, for some of us, that's going to mean going home and getting on our knees quite literally before God and repenting, telling God, God, I I repent. That means I change my view of what I was thinking before. I thought this sin was no big deal. I thought I could live with it. I thought it doesn't really matter. God, I confess all sin in my life is absolute treason against you. All of it's a big deal. Some of you, you just need to get on your knees. You You need to adopt God's view of your sin. You need to acknowledge how wrong it is. And then once you do that, second thing that I think Isaiah wants us to do is to do whatever it takes to win the battle against sin. The Bible is quite clear. We're not going to stop fighting a war against sin and temptation in this life. For the rest of this life, you will be in warfare. That's, That's actually the definition of a godly, mature Christian walk is a person who is constantly at war with sin. You're going to be at war, but the good news is in the midst of that warfare against sin, you can win more and more battles as the course of your life progresses. You can grow in victory over sin. Let me give you just a a few of many possible ways that you can grow in victory. Number one, I encourage you, if you've never done it, to write yourself a personal motive list. Motive list is just a sheet of paper. Maybe it's your journal. Maybe it's a little card you carry in your wallet. That's actually what I do. I've written out a card that I put in my wallet. A motive list is where you write for you all of the motives, all of the reasons why it would be folly to give into sin. It may be a particular sin that you're writing motives about. It may be sin in general. You write for you. What will you give up if you give into sin? What consequences will come into your life? How will God look at your sin? You write all of these things down. It's the same idea as Isaiah has, but it's more personal to you. What will you sacrifice by giving into sin? Write it all down and then review it. That's an incredibly helpful tool to to reshape your thinking. On a regular basis, review that motive list. By the time you get to the end of it, you're gonna be so overwhelmed with the thought of, I desperately don't wanna give into this sin. If I give into this sin, this is what will happen. It will remind you and reshape your mind so that you see sin like God does. Create a motive list if you've not done it before. Second, get accountability. This life cannot be lived in isolation. If you're trying to fight sin on your own, you will fail. You need accountability. We all do for our entire lives. I'm I'm happy to say that as a pastor here at Grace Bible Church, I have accountability. Every week I meet with a couple other pastors. We confess everything going on in our lives. We pray for one another. I'm gonna need that till the day I die. I don't end my need of accountability till I'm in my grave. You need accountability. 
You need another believer or multiple other believers who you can confess how you're doing, who you can hold each other accountable, pray for one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another when you're giving into sin. You need to be held accountable. Third, if, if you're here this morning and you're giving into sin, not because you really want to, but because you feel like you have to, You've given into a sin over and over again to the point where now it is an addiction. Now you are down in the pit. You can't even imagine life without this sin. This sin just owns you. I want to encourage you to take advantage of our Celebrate Recovery program here at the church. It actually meets here at the Southwood campus in the Fellowship Hall Tuesday evenings at 6.30. It's for every type of addictive sin, not just drugs or alcohol, sexual sins, relational sins, everything. It's all on the table. You come together. It's a safe place a confidential place, a place where you can get healing and have accountability. It will help you to climb out of that pit with God's help. God will draw you out of that pit so that you can begin to live a life free of the devastation that your addictive sin has brought into your life. Really encourage you. Don't feel shame if you go to celebrate recovery. That is an incredibly important step in your life to help you to live the life that God has designed. Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to see your sin as God sees it? Are you willing to take it as seriously as he did? Let's pray for his help to do that. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we rejoice that you are God. We rejoice that you are holy. We rejoice that you are perfect and wonderful. But Lord, we come before you trembling. We come before you ashamed. We come before you humbled, realizing that we have fallen so far short of your standard realizing that our sins, though we call them small, are actually huge in your eyes, that they are inexcusable, that they are awful, that they are devastating, that they merit your anger and your wrath. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess we have taken our sins too lightly. Father, we pray that your spirit would help us to grow, that we would grow to see sin like you do, that we would uh, see it ever more seriously, Lord. We pray that the light of your conviction might shine in, in dark recesses of our life, that we might see more and more clearly the sins in our lives, sins that maybe at the moment we're not aware of, Lord. Convict us of them, bring them to light so that you can deal with them, so that we can grow in victory over them. Lord, we pray that you would raise up to be mature, faithful, obedient followers of your son, Jesus. Lord, that's what you deserve from us. Please, in the power of your spirit, do whatever it takes, Father, to break us of our sin, to humble us before you, and to grow us in obedience. Lord, we pray not just for humility, but we pray for hope as well. We pray that every one of us would know the hope that comes through the gospel, that Christ has taken all of our sin upon himself and fully satisfied your wrath. We pray that we would know the hope that comes through your spirit, that sin is not our master. We can have victory over sin through the infinite and supernatural power of your spirit in our lives. Please, Father, help us to walk in hope and in obedience. Lord, we lift our lives up to you. You are worthy. You are great. You are awesome, Lord. Help us to live lives that are worthy of you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.